Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the weekly podcast from the Marketing Minds at DoConvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peak. We are here, episode 102. It's awesome, with Becca. Hi. Hi, she's here. <laughs> so, so exciting. Always good the, to have... I swear the entrance was on a change after uh, 100, like the. Uh, oh, we did talk about changing that, didn't we? No, yeah, so far. You know. But it is nice to have everyone back and have other voices besides um, my own and a guest. So I'm, I'm glad normal. to have you both <laughs> yeah. back with us. This is the normal, normal. Like it. Except for somewhat abnormally. I'm the only one who has a story time piece for today. That's okay. We'll, we'll kick off story time and get right to the news because we've got a whole bunch of stuff to cover in a short amount of time. And really, two kind of connected ideas here for me. One is what's on your stop doing list. Everyone's talking about everything they're doing and have adjusted to and changed, but there's still probably things as a marketer, especially that should be on your stop doing list. And I've had a lot of conversations with people, uh, those we don't work with even who have said, you know, our company's learned a lot about what is actually important that carried us through this period. And I was, you know, someone this afternoon was like, so now we're just like, we're not doing flyers and handouts and yes because we didn't we didn't use them and guess what we sold houses and still worked so yeah so i don't know what needs to be on your stop doing list but i guarantee you there's still something on there that you're hanging on to because there's also people who surprisingly are quickly reverting back to kind of business as normal Uh, and so they're not they're not continuing to apply the lessons that they've learned across the board from the last seven eight weeks and then that leads me to my second point, which is don't be caught by surprise next time. I'm not saying the next time we have a pandemic uh, or the next time the help, but, but don't, don't be surprised that again, where I was like, as I kept saying, where the puck is going is where it's going to continue to be going. Yeah. And any other kind of joke we talk about sometimes is when managers are surprised that around seven months after someone tells you they're going to go on maternity leave in seven months, you're like, they oh, do. shoot, like they're gone. Uh, what are we going to do, guys? How are we going to keep this rolling? You know, we can't let that, that catch us by surprise. And we also can't let something similar or similar in terms of direction towards where the consumer and, and marketing needs to go catch us by surprise again. So if this does come back around in the fall or winter, don't be surprised. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, again, goes back to like, don't don't just go straight back to what normal looked like beforehand and say, well, now things are opening back up. Lots of reports of walking traffic going through the roof in many, many locations. And the, the race is definitely on. We're going to talk through a lot of economic uh, news articles here and, and, and data points, but this is crunch time. We've got, by all accounts, at least through the end of July, early August, to, to make hay while the sun shines. We've got mm-hmm. a compressed spring market where we lost about four weeks for from walking traffic in most areas and and have some pent up demand. We've got this reshuffling of people looking to to relocate. Becca's got a fun mm-hmm. story on that one to share later. But eventually, when stimulus runs out, if if it runs out, if the government doesn't do more, eighty percent of people think their jobs are coming back. Sixty percent of people who have been furloughed are making more on unemployment than they were working. There's all this kind of artificialness in the air and yep. and that mm-hmm. combined with a compressed spring market and people looking to make changes based upon being stuck in their house or finding out they can work from home forever there's there's all this happening at one time and so the most 
predominant thing I'm hearing from most of our builder partners is we are overwhelmed. Salespeople are overwhelmed. Online salespeople are overwhelmed. There is just so much to sort through and so much coming at us so quickly that our biggest problem is identifying the best people to work with the fastest. So it's a lot to digest. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that like wasn't it. story time as much as like the more you know, PSA kind that of. That is. Yeah. It's like but, two minutes in and marketing and go. This is your daily. Yeah, they could have a segment on there. I, I was going to say at the beginning, this fit definitely more, but I, if I could add a what's on your not doing list, stop, doing. stop mm-hmm. you're not doing, like as far as things you should be doing, you're not doing, this is your not doing list. I think it's it's a, a theme overall. This isn't like an individual person or a group or anything to rely too much on dashboards and reporting versus being comfortable with the interfaces. And so there's this, I think I feel there's this resistance to just going into you know, the Facebook ad manager or the Google ad manager, because you get, you see things there that you do not see elsewhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't, I think that needs to be a normal that people need to do, especially if that's your, your role. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in there and get dirty. I had this conversation with someone from a very large organization uh, that we do not work with, but they were just picking, picking my brain. We we're having a good conversation overall. And I just mentioned that, you know, the most important metric is still uh, leads, appointments and sales. For sure. Not CPC, yeah. not CTR, not total amount of, of website visitors. None of that is the thing on the dashboard or, or wherever you're looking that is the most important. And it's the single most common question that we follow up with anyone <laughs> who asks us any opinion on anything is, yeah. awesome, thank you for that insight. Can you please tell us how appointment sales <laughs> and, and lead information looks? You know, yeah. and, and so I think that goes along with it. For sure. Yep. Yeah. 100%. For sure. But I think there, you're through this this major transition period where you just like got smacked across the face. What happened? And so there's this tendency that I'm I'm hearing people not overtly say, but just kind of like, well, things are more or less back to normal, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you need to be working on the normal. Right. You still should be thinking and working towards the future. For sure. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's jump into some news uh, articles here. Well, first one's from Inman. Actually, the first two are from Inman. Mm-hmm. Reminder, if you go back to the show notes on previous episodes, the last two episodes, I think, we've got a special link where you can get you get a 90-day trial of Inman for a dollar. And then you can also get access to Inman Connect now, which is coming up here in early June for another 49 bucks. So for 50 bucks, you get access to all this stuff. But And, and someone else asked me, are you sponsored? by them. No, we still don't have sponsors. We don't make money. It's not an affiliate link. Man. Um, it's just, just to help out. But first <laughs> I'm one sign is, up right now though, just right, so you know, yeah. I'm doing it in this moment. Yeah. Here's how COVID-19 impacted home construction in April. Privately owned housing starts dropped roughly 30% as a result of COVID-19 in April. Now housing starts part of there, there's all kinds of factors in here. It's a rather short news story, but don't forget, this isn't just sales data. It's also a lot of municipalities uh, had a couple weeks where they were unsure of how to process requests for permits or they were just shut down and you couldn't request permits. So it's one way to look at the marketplace, certainly, but about a 30% drop in housing starts in April. And for those of you who haven't taken the MBA class in home building yet, that means that at some point, in theory, you would have a 30% drop in closings. That's never fun for a company to have a 30% hit to revenue. So if your boss's head is kind of twitching a little yeah. bit when you look at them on the Zoom call, that, that might be something they're c- coming to grips with. 
Uh, the other one from Inman, this was published on May 18th, is that Compass, one of the largest brokerage uh, agencies in the country, report shows that housing market hit bottom around mid-April. And by their charts, it looks like around April 13th was the low point. And then it, it started you know, coming back up from there. This is particularly the low point in D.C. In the yeah, that's, that I'm that's so interesting that April 13th, like that day right? across the whole United States, just boom. Because all those different markets were quite different with how they reacted to all of this going on. Well, I think what's also interesting and not scientific in any way is I still, to, to me, March 12th slash 13th is when COVID began yeah. in, in mass. And so it's almost in a, a full 30 days, which just gives you this kind of mental idea of how long did it take everyone to say, okay, I can't just curl up in a ball. Yeah, I've got to start making... Uh, other adjustments combined with what was allowed in different different for sure. areas for we're sure. We're getting yeah. crazy down here in mm -hmm. Florida. It's, it's mm -hmm. getting wacky. Yeah, we're the we're the test. Yep. <laughs> and I put I'm not sure how we're going to share this everyone, but I also put a, a rather interesting chart from Redfin, is where the data comes from, that shows the percentage of listings year over year by a couple different markets. I threw in Columbus, Ohio, where I am, Austin, Texas, which seems to be overall the most resilient market in the yeah. country. Detroit and Philadelphia. And what's really interesting is Detroit at one point about two weeks ago was down 75% year over year in terms of homes on the market. And then within about a week, week and a half period of time, they shot all the way back up to only down 10%. So they went from an being enormous shift, like the worst yeah. on this chart to almost beating Austin. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so there's a couple of factors here to consider. One is the, the main reason that it shot back up was because the state of Michigan reopened and allowed activity to resume uh, at a different pace. But one of the things that's protected house prices through all this is that people have, for the most part, chosen to keep their homes off the market. So Detroit will be an interesting one to watch. Don't be surprised if you hear us talk about it in future episodes. Because what happens when you go from having a negative 75% supply to only negative 10% in a week and a half does that create a glut of homes on the market where people then begin to lower their asking price more significantly over time to incur, you know, that supply demand balance is really what we're talking about here. And, and Becca, this is the time to share your story. From your, is it your brother-in-law or your brother? My brother. So my brother called me earlier this week to tell me that he finally was able to purchase a house. They'd lost a couple of houses in bidding wars. And the only reason they got this house is because they were the only local people. Everyone else was from super far away metro areas. That what, what market is this that, that he's in? This is Portland, Maine. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> One state we never, ever, ever talk about. Yeah. Maine. So... They don't have too many homes on the market, so pretty much everything is going for a bidding war. But yeah, wow. and even more now that people are looking to leave their cities. But yes, they got a house, so that's great. Yeah, I wonder if there is a program, you know, Mike Lyon is in Tulsa, and we also work with a builder in Tulsa who's had an amazing, I think they're up like 25% wow. year to date still, just wow. sailed right on through, even, even almost mm -hmm. accelerated sales volume. But they have a, a program that's gotten quite a bit of attention. I think I saw an article on CNN where you know they're they're willing to pay someone who's going to work remotely. They'll pay you ten thousand dollars if you promise to live in Tulsa for at least a year. 
Hmm. They'll pay you to come live there. So that's cool. Okay. I wonder if there's something like that happening in, in other places that not that Maine isn't a wonderful place to visit. It's definitely <laughs> on my, on my list, but I would, I'd prefer Maine over Oklahoma, I think. Yeah. I'll, but I don't know that I'd want to move from California to Maine. There's a oh, lot of winter, a lot, yeah, a lot of winter. Yeah. Winter. But, Interesting. and there's all kinds of charts out there showing, you know, where are people moving from New York city? Boston seems to be a really yeah. Boston and Florida. Both are, are high on the list. But the the bidding wars is not it's not an ancillary story. I just had posted in the Market Proof Marketing Group uh, this morning, actually, an article from CNBC dated May twentieth. That more than forty one percent of homes faced a bidding war in the four weeks ending May tenth, according mm-hmm. to Redfin, and that's up from only nine percent in January. Wow! Obviously, wow. before the pandemic hit. So new listings were down twenty nine percent year over year in May 9th. And it is getting better, but it's still slow progress. So we, we still overall have more people interested in buying. And that's, again, back to that temporary shift of just saying like, okay, we need more space mm-hmm. or I can now work from anywhere. Where do I want to go? Where is family? Um, what's most important to me? How do I want to kind of reset? So basically consumers are doing the thing I talked about in my story time. They're saying, hey, I don't want to get caught by this again. I want to be in a better situation if something like this occurs. Uh, so 41%, that's, I mean, that's a lot of, of bidding wars happening that's out there. Lot. And that's, that's one, that's one advantage to new construction is, you know, first yeah. offer most people are going to get as long as it's the asking price, there's some extra certainty there or there could be yeah. some extra certainty. And you don't have to, did your brother have to write a, a letter? Not have to write, but did the realtor <laughs> say, Hey, you should write a letter. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about, Becca? No. Where it's, like, it's pretty much like a bio and like, this is what we would love your home. I could imagine myself sitting on the front porch, yep. drinking a cup of coffee with my dog. No. It's he didn't really have, strange. He didn't have to write a letter, but okay. the realtor Good. did kind of pass along that they are expecting. So that did help oh, a there little you go. bit. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we had to write a letter because the person who sold us the home we live in currently didn't change their mind because they realized they couldn't replace it. The replacement cost on a similar home was more than they Ooh. thought. They thought they were going to make money on the deal. They were going to end up losing money oh. on the deal. And we had to write a letter saying like, sorry, we need five bedrooms. There are no other five bedroom homes in that price range on the market. Man. Yeah. 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 All right, moving on. We missed a whole bunch of Facebook updates that came out a couple of weeks ago, just in the, in the timing of the show. But I think the most interesting one of all of them to me was Facebook rooms. And so yep. I just wanted to call your attention to that. Most of you, if you've updated your app recently, have seen an extra line of faces at the top of your app that where it says create room. And then it shows you everyone who is currently active that are friends of yours with little green dots next to them. And so the idea is, while everyone's on Zoom and GoToMeeting and Skype and everything else, Facebook wants it on the deal. So you can now create a video chat room via Facebook or the Messenger app and invite up to 50 people to join your call. Even if they do not have a Facebook account, there's no time limit on the calls. Wow. So Zoom at the touch of a button, no need to install anything. Invite anyone you want to. Now, there's some other cool functionality to it in that you can... The room can be private. You can lock the room. Um, they even mentioned in the future they're going to have the ability to charge to gain entry to rooms. Interesting. Oh. So this is this is a new way for 
potential monetization for people who create great content, uh, influencers, et cetera, will be able to, if you want to be the first 50 to, to see X, Y, Z occur, you could, you could lock that as well. Come hang out with us. I wonder yeah. if they'll make it ever like a standing open room. Like if it's like, okay, every Friday between two to three without a admin being there or something, it could be like the market proof marketing hangout room or whatever without, I would not be surprised. Control. In fact, that that's one of the That'd reasons really cool. I wanted to cover it is this could be another option. A lot of the webinars, different content pieces we've talked about, how do builders hold events? And one of the first questions you're trying to ask yourself a virtual event is, is this public available for anyone? I, you're just going to live stream it and it's there. Or is it a private event? And the private event before Facebook Rooms would have meant that you're pushing it to Zoom or GoToMeeting or some other service. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't get the same exposure. And But now this would be an opportunity to have virtual open houses for a limited audience. It's always interesting to see what, what Facebook's uh, working on next. Yeah. And I, I think it's definitely something to watch uh, simply because of ease of use and how many people have an account. It definitely fits well. the, if you remember mm-hmm. when the Oculus Go was being pushed, there was that video of Mark Zuckerberg like in his living room. And then mm-hmm. he'd kind of show up in someone else's living room when you put the Go on your face. Of course, that's <laughs> a little different with, yeah. the, with the VR, but the same type of, that's the same, that's the concept is, except yep. we don't have to have yeah. that Oculus Go on your face. Now, since we're talking about Facebook and video, of course, I'm going to have to also remind all of you that privacy is still an issue <laughs> in that. <laughs> There is no end-to-end encryption on any of these on any of these conversations. So interesting. Yeah. Just as we always say, Who don't say anything listening? you wouldn't say in front of your mother. Yeah. No corporate <laughs> meetings. That's. <laughs> All right. Oh, super man. quick news story from SearchEngineLand.com. There's a core update for May 2020 from Google that is now done. And why do we say it's going to be quick? Because you can go read it. There's. But, but as always, it's like, what changed a whole lot? Do we know exactly why it changed and, and what drove it? No. no, not really. Stay focused on great content and, and don't overly freak out. But it, it is interesting that overall, it seems like it was simply reshuffling some part of the algorithm to take into account what the consumer is like. So, Andrew, you probably have a better way of saying this, but instead of purely being keyword focused and going to pages that historically have converted or given the user what they wanted, mm-hmm. it's almost like Google put another layer over saying like, you're probably not trying to fly right now. So I'm not going to try to sell you a ticket on April 15th to go travel to another state, for example. Yeah, I feel like mm-hmm. if you were to layer in like a personality or attribute to the search, be like there's more context and timeliness and combine that with like your intent if you mm-hmm. could program that like it's like what are they looking for given the environment of now but i don't the cool thing is they're not putting now as far as covid19 they're like they're somehow that will always shuffle like hurricane season's coming up for florida i'm sure that will take into account how it's going to show the search results for people mm-hmm. in florida and like the southern coast yeah it's insane the yeah you know, all that and <laughs> how does that work Andrew, out? Yeah. you posted this in our in our private uh, conversation document here, which is awesome as a good reminder. Organic traffic for builders is off the charts. Crazy. Um, I mean, we're talking yeah. probably just eyeballing it here. 
25, 30% increase in organic traffic compared to last May at the same time. And that's, oh, general update for everyone. For a long time, uh, if you watch any of the webinars or content we put out, we talked about don't look at year over year because it's not relevant right now. Definitely by about early to mid-April, you should on all of your you should be going back to year over year at this point. Yeah. It what is was actually that date? more helpful. April April twelfth, April thirteenth, in the yep. uh Inman article, which if we look at that our private little doc here, that's like mm -hmm. like shifts up yeah. right then, mm -hmm. which is and that goes back to the lead problem, and I problems in air quotes that people talk about of having too many leads, too many people for salespeople to act, appropriately meet with and communicate with. One of the challenges right now is even if you you do scale back on advertising, which I wouldn't recommend because we're in that we're in that compressed time period. So the panic period is over. My my recommendation in in a one minute soundbite is keep your budget that you originally set for yourself at the beginning of the year. For, for now through the end of July as set. So bring back anything you dropped and just stay stay current with the budget because you're taking advantage of everything that's going on right now. But that said, historically, if we had a problem with too many leads, we'd say, we'll pull back on ads. The, the challenge, and it's a good Ooh. challenge, is organic has increased so much and that, that traffic converts so much higher that there is almost limited ability to do that. Like it's almost like we're powerless as marketers to slow things down. It's it's that hot right now. Good problems. Oops. Good problems. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, okay, and then Thais dropped this one in here because because she Andrew is her favorite. I think um, that's right. Yay. <laughs> no. An update here from AdAge.com: Home Depot and Lowe's are primed for historic growth during the pandemic, and this is because Andrew mentioned last week in his story time segment oh, yeah. about the self checkouts being so amazing. At Home Depot, um, yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. but they they are up. Although what's interesting from the last quarter, of the results that Home Depot just put out is the reason they are up is not because of home builders or professional building companies uh, using materials or, or coming into their store. It's from all the people fixing up their own homes. So yeah. do-it-yourselfers, yes. dramatically higher increase than professional services and supplies. Yeah, it'd be. Well, I guess Andrew's been, but have you been lately? Yeah, yeah. We're you know in Florida, we don't we don't care about anything, so we've been living as if everything has been normal. So it's it's yeah, we've been there. It's just as busy as it would be without this going on. Um, the weekends, there's no parking, which is just yeah. Nuts. Everyone is half the people still wear like a mask and whatnot out there in the 90 degree Florida heat, getting bags of mulch and. And whatnot, but it's it's crazy. I've I feel like I've I have seen more people with what appears to be bigger projects. I, I there's yeah that's just anecdotal evidence. Like it doesn't mean anything. But like usually when I go to Home Depot at certain times, it's like okay, you got the, the dads trying to fix the sprinklers on the weekend because that's mm -hmm. always they're always breaking. But I'm like this dude's putting fence up. This guy's got like a whole thing of wood. Like that's is, our neighborhood. Our whole neighborhood is doing outside mulching putting fences up, all sorts of yard work, everything. And I went last weekend. It was absolutely insane. Yeah. it's We don't talk a lot about messaging generally, but I think to this point in the article references, you know, in times of economic downturn, normally homeowners pull back and shift on spending to repairs and upkeep instead of enhancements. The, the messaging idea is basically that a lot of people now want space 
And yeah. um, friends of ours put it this way to me when I, when I was talking to them is, these are the folks we know in Guatemala. They're like, hey, there's, there's two main things that really can affect how people are experiencing this. One is if there's true economic loss or pain. So if you lose your job or you don't have money to buy the things you need, certainly mm-hmm. not pay extra to have them delivered to you. And this is particularly difficult. The second is just how much space you have in your home. If if everyone, you know, a family of six is living in a 10 by 10 brick mud hut and they can't go anywhere and their country's locked down, that's a little different and more stressful than, you know, where everyone can go in their own space or go in the backyard with a fence and kind of have their own time away. So bringing back to messaging that builders can and should be using I want to give credit here. I think it was LGI that um, I was sent an email from that had a great email that was just all about space. And it didn't talk about health. It didn't talk about the virus. It didn't talk about anything. It just basically, you know, we have spacious kitchens, spacious gourmet kitchens. We've got open great rooms. We've got yards. We've got um, bedrooms that are big enough for multiple uses, home office, bedroom, et cetera. And, and it was really well done, well laid out. But kind of this idea of you can you can remodel your space. You can... You can add a new coat of paint to the wall, but you can't make it bigger as easily. Like to add mm-hmm. square footage on an existing home is exponentially more expensive on a per square foot basis than building a new home. And I think there's something in the messaging there that that a lot of people listening could use to reinforce of, I know the temptation is let's just remodel the kitchen. Guess what? It might make it a little more functional, but in terms of space, and if that's something that's been driving you nuts, it's not really helping you. Yeah, like a space yeah. for everyone. Or some some phrase that they could be like, oh, I totally get that. Exactly. That's good. That's good. Yeah. All right, that'll do it for this section. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to sit down with Seth Hart from DTJ Design. He's an architect and a good friend that I've had a chance to get to know at uh, PCBC and other events, Builder Show, a uh, frequent member of our Breakfast Club. There is a note here for everyone that this was recorded, I think, the first week that COVID was actually even being whispered about. So just for context there, we're not going to be talking about changes during COVID. This is more of a comprehensive discussion that I think goes along the lines of marketers need to understand how other departments and other other disciplines in our industry work and function and how we could potentially interact better with them by learning more about how they do what they do. So we'll be right back with Seth Hart. May you have auspiciousness and causes of success. May you have the confidence to always do your best. May you take no effort in your being generous. Sharing what you can, nothing more, nothing less. May you know the meaning of the word happiness. May you always lead from... And here we are back with Seth Hart. Seth has been in our industry since 2003 and is currently an associate and senior designer at DTJ Design, based out of Colorado, right? Somewhere in Colorado? Yeah, yeah we're based out of, out of Boulder, Colorado, and we also have offices in Atlanta, Georgia, and Austin, Texas. Nice. So we're going to get perspective kind of, of product and development around the country. So that, Absolutely. That's so Seth, you are the first, well... You're an architect, right? Does what I, is, what do you call true. yourself? <laughs> I, well, I think legally I can't call myself an architect because I have not passed all my exams yet. But you yes, don't I'm stamp a, things. You say. I know. So I'm just I'm a designer, but okay. uh, been been working in the residential world for most of my 17 years. I'd say probably about 15 of, of the 17 or 14, something like that, and then 
a little bit of work in kind of multifamily mixed use urban development. Yeah, you've been around the block. And I met you, I think, for the first time at a PCBC Breakfast Club meeting, maybe four years ago now. I can't be <laughs> that long. Sounds about it? accurate. And so partly due to the blame of Will Duterstadt, we'll give him full credit and blame for our for our social <laughs> connection, I think. But I really wanted to have Seth on to talk to us about the design process, what has shifted in the marketplace over time, different trends. It'd actually be kind of fun to hear you, Seth, talk about trends that have died that used to be extremely popular that aren't anymore. And I think that'd be interesting to hear as well. But also just kind of how is design still kind of this thing that builders just come to you in the last minute and say, just sketch us up something pretty or how much involvement in product design is happening in today's environment. So lots of things to dive into, but let's let's just jump into kind of what are the current things that, that you're seeing as trends or problems that builders are asking you to solve through your design process? Yeah. Well, it's funny just, you know, hearing that kind of introduction on it, I was like, wow, we, this is a deep dive that we could talk about all kinds of different things. So glad we came back and, and focused, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, the tr- current trends that I'm seeing, you know, there's a, there's a variety of different trends. I think even that is kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can take that, you know, I'm, I do a lot of work in the Denver market. So Denver is definitely one of those, those core areas where we're really focused on attainability and density mm-hmm. and how we can kind of crack the nut of getting below a certain price point, you know, for us, I'd say 350,000 is kind of that hard to get below number, at least without going just way to the outskirts, you know, and giving someone an hour and a half drive to Denver or something. Sure. So sure. That's a huge one for us. And the way that that starts to trickle into the rest of design is, you know, cause it, it's, that's, that's the kind of primary goal. Now, what does that mean for floor plans? What does that mean for first square footages? What does that mean for, garages, you know, is it a two cars? Are we thinking maybe a one car? That's kind of the one that we we keep pushing out as, have we thought about this? We could maybe get a tighter footprint, but seems to be um, still a lot of pushback on getting away from that kind of traditional two car garage, unless you're in more mm-hmm. of a, like a dense urban environment with public transit as an option. But the, sure. the electric vehicle and self-driving cars and Uber, you know, has not gotten rid of the two car garage yet. <laughs> right. So, well, eventually yeah. that two car garage will be turned into a nice Airbnb when you right know, exactly yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> future investment. So <laughs> I need to I need to focus a, a you know a, a, an article on on that how to how to re repurpose your garage for the future. Yeah. So that's interesting. Even just hearing you say, kind of the the main thing that builders are coming to you with is here's a square, here's a dimension, rectangle, whatever that we need you to stick within. Certainly. But then also, are they talking to you about price point up front? And then if they are, how much of that, how deep into that do you go? Are you basically estimating costs as you're designing? Or do you work with a team of people who are helping with that? Talk, talk to me about how that you know, works. It's a, it's a real collaborative process with the builder. You know, we being, you know, as you said, been doing this a long time. So I've got a pretty good idea of what, where we're going to be spending money or saving money. So a lot of it comes into efficiency of layout. So they say that every corner in a foundation adds, you know, five thousand dollars. And it, it's it's funny because yeah. we have these numbers like that, or a, a drop <laughs> beam. If you're floating in a second floor over a garage that isn't stacking on walls, a drop beam five thousand dollars. I don't know why, but everything seems to cost five thousand dollars. But <laughs> and so we've got all these trigger points, and so. You know, I worked on a, a project in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, which is kind of on the, the south side of town. And 
we were trying to, once again, trying to create these. These were actually detached townhomes, but we were sitting in the meeting with a client and they said, well, you know, we want you to design a four corner foundation. We don't want any corners in this because every corner costs, you know, whatever it costs. And so we, we kind of smiled and shook our heads and thought, oh, they don't, they don't really mean they want a four corner foundation. But, you know, at the end of the day, we had one plan that was out of the three that was just dead set four corners. That's all we had to work with. And then they wanted every, it was a three-story detached townhome and every single exterior wall needed to stack, you know? So we're, <laughs> we're really starting to look at construction efficiency as kind of the starting point of how do we, yeah. how do we make this as easy to build as simple structurally, you know, cost-effective, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, everything from roof pitches, we had kind of a sweet spot, 412 to 612 was about, you know, all they wanted to work with because once you start making the roof pitch steeper, then labor prices mm-hmm. go up, roofers start to charge more. And if it goes less, then you end up, mm-hmm. you know, putting more cost into waterproofing. So, you know, it, that's kind of where it all starts is just really looking at the structure and how do we simplify structure, wow. even if it's a, you know, a traditional you know, single family home, you know, how trying to stack the the walls on top of, uh, you know, first floor walls from the second floor and really just trying to keep construction efficient. How much information do builders typically give you in terms of the type of buyer that they anticipate living in that project? And, And I'm sure they give you generalities, but do they get very specific? That's a great question because some builders, not quite as much. Some builders actually look to us to say, you know, if we're trying to hit this price point, we're in this community. What, what do you think the buyer is? What do you think the bedroom count should be? We work with some builders that, you know, they do extensive, you know, buyer research. You know, they'll work with other companies that create this whole, you know, document that says, here's who your buyer is. Here's your target market. This is exactly what the bedroom count they need. So, um, we've got some pretty sophisticated builders that really do their homework before they even pick up the phone and call us. And they, you know, they're they're coming to us with, here's our exact program. We want the first plan to be 2,100 to 2,200 square feet. Next plan is 2,300. And, you know, they got the bedroom count, the loft, you know, the office that options this bed for, all that kind of stuff, like very well thought out. And that's great to hear because it seems like for so much of my career, when you would talk to a builder even the builder that I worked with for a long time, who, who is the target market? And they'd be like, well, you know, people who, who buy houses. And you're like, well, <laughs> that's, there's got to be more to, well, you know, expensive houses or cheap houses. You know, one of those is like, oh, gosh, is that really all we have to go off of? Talk about the exterior design and the conflict I imagine there is between getting approval on a project from a, a municipality where they really don't care about the efficiency of stacking the floors directly on top of each other or the roof pitches being affordable. They want to make sure because they get pushed back from the residents, right? Of, sure. Hey, this has to look good. It can't. And, and how, how can you get creative with materials or, or other tricks to, to take something that is still a box, but has some appearance anyway of dimensionality to it. The interesting thing with the municipality is we don't tend to have a lot of trouble getting designs through municipalities, no matter where we're working, because, oh, that's you know, I think luck, luckily for me is we, we tend to work with builders that want to work with us because I think that we have a pay a little bit closer uh-huh. attention to details and design. And I think that even if we're working with a four corner foundation, we're doing everything we can to still make it have a, a nice appeal to it, you know, cause at the end of the day, I, I don't think I could live with myself if I'm designing homes that have zero curb appeal, but check all the boxes of efficiency and affordability and, and, you know, this, that, and the other. So, you know, we're still figuring out ways. We're just as a, you know, as designers, we're forcing ourselves to be creative as well to say, okay, 
the demands are changing for what people want and you know how how we can spend money on design and things like that. So we're really having to kind of think be creative with color, with trim, with materials and different things like that to try and create, you know, a little bit more simplicity, but keeping some interest. And honestly, one of the bigger design trends, going back to trends, was the idea of the modern farmhouse and, you know, the the explosion of modern farmhouses, this design trend. And oh, yeah. the thing that I really liked about it is, you know, you just take a, a one simple kind of, you know, it's, it's really based in simple forms. It's, you know, kind of a just a simple one, two roof moves the the most elegant ones that i've seen are very simple it's yep. a single material whether it's siding or board and bat kind of a single it's color. almost like the equivalent of the you know even though ancient greek construction used to have color on it right now obviously it's just it's as white and timeless <laughs> and mm-hmm. i kind of feel like the the modern farmhouse is like the american version of of greek architecture it's like yeah this, yeah this. and I, you know there, i think there's something to that and it's just i think it does kind of speak to this timelessness and and i think that that's what's been really people have had a lot of appreciation for it but i also think it feels like it's not just timeless but it's almost kind of I don't know. It's, it, it doesn't have a specific location either, you know, and like when I was working in California, everything was Tuscan and Spanish and this, that, and the other thing. Well, you bring that to Colorado and it doesn't feel like it fits. Whereas in California, no. it's kind of been going on so long that it feels very appropriate. Oh, there's um, a project here right near where I live in central Ohio. And I think it's called Toscana, which then even takes it to a whole new level. It might be called something else, but I think it was called Toscana. That's perfectly it was on the nose. So it sounds super high end, super high end Tuscan style homes, mostly ranches. And it was just like, this fell out of the sky. Like it was <laughs> like an alien race came and brought this to central Ohio where, where modern farmhouse is certainly much more appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's where I think that that farmhouse style kind of, it feels like it could be appropriate in so many different places. And, and, you know, you change the color and it could fit mm. in different areas. You know, you paint it in a little bit more of the uh, pastel colors and it might feel a little more appropriate in the coastal area. Or, yeah. You know, yeah. Low country. Type. Absolutely. You know, give it more brick and it might feel a little more appropriate in Atlanta or something to that effect. So, you know, exactly. it just, it's, I feel like, it, but the other thing that my mind started with when we first started talking about this with regards to municipalities is, the interesting thing is the, the one of the bigger things that we go up against is actually masonry requirements because that's the mm. one area where I just did a project kind of out by our airport here in Denver and it's called Painted Prairie and they actually the municipality had pretty high masonry requirements and it's this kind of you know the it's it's a pretty far out community so they're trying to be price sensitive because of its location but uh, masonry really drives up costs. And I think we had like a 25% masonry requirement. It wasn't just the front elevation. It was, I think, across the whole uh, the home, you know, all four sides. So wow, yeah. it's interesting where you come up with things like that, where the, you know, the municipality is trying to do something where they're saying, okay, well, we're going to put this requirement in here to kind of help level the playing field, make sure everything has sets this minimum standard. But the, the issue that I kind of see with that as a designer is it's, it's challenging because we're one, we're going in with these modern farmhouses that don't really need masonry and they still look really handsome. And then, you know, other people go in and they say, okay, well, we need the 25% masonry. So they put it all in this one element that just doesn't feel like it ties in with the rest. And then they, you know, wrap it two feet back and it dies. 
which is you know, yeah. my biggest pet peeve of all time. So I'd rather have it thoughtful than give us this percent. Yeah. And, and masonry, just for those of you who may not be in this world at all, uh, all you're really doing is making Facebook ads, Google ads, and, and emails and, and flyers, bricks, stone, fibrous, cement, siding. What else qualifies as masonry? Anything I'm missing? Stucco? It's not no, masonry, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I always consider it. This stucco does count in some regions. I always just consider, like you said, brick and stone. So any, any of that. Yeah. And it's so funny too, when you were mentioning the different things you could do to a modern farmhouse, in different areas, I definitely think we could play a flashcard game. You and I like a contest of, and you would win certainly because this is all you do. (laughs) But we look at a lot of pictures of, of homes all across the country. And I think within at least one state of locale, I could make an estimate. Then it would either be in that state or it'd be touching that state. If you showed me a picture of any new construction project out there, that'd be a fun. <laughs> that fun would. It's, it's it's funny that you mention that because I I have house is my is my you know it's my homepage whenever I open up Chrome, <laughs> and I was just scrolling through it a minute ago, and I'm just kind of flipping through pictures. I just like to kind of always see what's what's new and interesting, and I think I do that quite a bit. I look at houses. I'm like, I'm like just thinking that's got to be Florida. Up that that one's <laughs> right. clearly New York, or oh, this one's Minneapolis, or it's it's just interesting how you know I was just doing that. Yep, exactly. And I think the other thing we should do, not today, but some other time, I feel like we've got to do a Facebook Live or something where I just show you pictures of homes and you we get like your initial gut reaction to it. Because <laughs> oh, oh my man. goodness, that could be dangerous. <laughs> there is, and we wouldn't certainly tell who's who, or or but. Man, I'm seeing in the the idea of affordability. I know is there, but man, am I seeing some stuff that again, it's like this weird Frankenhouse thing that makes no sense whatsoever. There's somewhere there's there's in design world a rule that says if you want something to look like it's modern, just put random odd sized windows all over the place. Oh yeah, you know, oh and, you know, and, and put six materials on it and paint it seven colors <laughs> and do the wedge roofs that you know. All right. this, they, yeah. they go every which way. And, you know, I, I, I think that that's where one thing that we've really focused on as a, or at least it's kind of been like my personal mission is whenever we go into a, to meet with a builder and they want modern, I always try and push, you know, I try and show them basically here's, if you go on house and you look at custom homes and you look at modern, you see a bunch of really cool boxes, floor to ceiling glass just beautiful materials and all these different mm-hmm. things. And, it's, and you say, okay, that, that's great. How do we do that? And my first thought is we can't do that because we're building production <laughs> homes. We're not going to do flat roofs. We're not going to do floor to ceiling glass. We're not going to do all these different things that make that home so special. So yep. what I've really focused on is saying, you know, the traditional forms mixed with some modern design aesthetic can really go a long way to make something kind of feel modern and interesting. You know, it's like the modern farmhouse. I've, you know, I've, I've done a few different exercises with that where you show it and one looks real traditional and then you start shifting yep. the window patterning and, and it looks a little bit more modern. And then you pull all the windows to the corner and now it starts to look really contemporary and change your, your roof overhangs So they're really tight on the contemporary one and mm-hmm. uh, you know, a little more traditional on the other and. And then you've got a collection of homes that feel very different, very unique, very, you know, different sliding scale of what is modern or contemporary to traditional. And yet the the roof forms all kind of being reminiscent of one another. It all still is very comfortable and it could fit in a community together. 
And so that's something that I kind of keep trying to push because when you really, especially from a production standpoint, trying to go uber modern with, you know, funky roof forms and all these different materials. And, and especially the, like you said, you, you get the seven different moves on the outside. I, I think the, the idea of modern is simplicity. So trying Amen. to find ways to keep things more simple and elegant and kind of like a few big moves, but not trying to make it feel chaotic. Yeah. And I'm just super impressed with myself that I've been able to hang with what you're saying, because I don't think I've ever told you this, Seth, but the first two years in home building for me for 2003 to 2005, I kept hearing everyone use this word gable and I had no idea what it was. And there, you know, it took me two years to figure out that's what a gable is. So the fact that I'm hanging with you here. I'm you know, I, I, I don't judge you one, one bit. I've got my own story of something similar. When I first started in 2003, I was fresh out of school and thought I, you know, knew all kinds of things. And I was working at a, a firm in Southern California and my, uh, th- this woman that ended up being still my, my longtime mentor, but she was a, she was an associate there. And I was kind of her designated, her right-hand man. And my first task was I was drawing these park structures cause it's, you know, it was kind of like the low hanging fruit and she was, too, <laughs> she had better things to do. So she left me to do it. And she says, make sure you draw all the rafter tails. I really want them to see all the rafter tails. I didn't want to, you know, it's like my first week. It didn't want to sound like I didn't know what I was doing. So I said, I said, okay, okay. And go back to my desk and draw. And then she came back, no rafter tails. Cause I had no idea what rafter tails were. And, uh, so, you know, I, I've definitely learned plenty of hard lessons and I think Gable and shed and all that took me a little while to pick up all the lingo too. So it's just, yeah. Gable and know, bulkhead. Those, those two things tripped me up for a long time. Yep. What are the, in terms of bedroom sizes, uh, dimensions. And again, part of this is trying to help marketers who have never been involved in product at all. And again, they, they might be listening thinking, I don't really know what a gable is either. Part of what I try to encourage people to do is don't just stay in your one lane of marketing. You need to understand sales, especially sales psychology and the sales process your team uses. I think yeah. you also really need to understand the basics of design. Not that you're going to start sketching out plans, but working with a designer, because a lot of marketers... Uh, when they switch from one company to another, a company like Madame Homes, for example, who we've done work with in the past, their marketing group is heavily involved in product design and feedback. And, and when they're initially hired, you know, they might just be an expert at ads. But and so you've got to quickly kind of jump in all, all things. So some of the trends that are happening in terms of which rooms are getting priority and sizing and just what is an average uh, secondary and 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 owner's suite dimension look like nowadays in terms of that production builder trying to get efficient? Yeah. So, you know, I think that, you know, the average sizes probably haven't changed a whole lot, you know, secondary bedrooms, ideally 12 by 12, something to that effect, mm-hmm. uh, master bedroom, you, general rule of thumb when we're working on anything that's a detached single family is a minimum of 15 feet in any direction for a master bedroom. You know, the biggest thing that we're seeing is, or especially, you know, an area that I always focus on is the kitchen. I think that even if I'm doing a townhome that's 1400 square feet, I'm going to try and make a kick, you know, just a kick butt kitchen in there. Cause I think that at least for me, that's how my wife and I live. We just, we hang out in the kitchen where we do a lot there. We sit at the Island and eat, and that's kind of our, our day to day. You know, if we have guests over, we all just sit around the Island. So I always try and make the kitchen a huge priority, no matter what size the home is. And I, I'll forego a dining room to try and keep a better kitchen. 
for, you know, if we're trying to create a super compact plan. Yeah, um, my, yeah, my so, reaction to that is all day long, but are builders still asking for dining rooms? Yeah, I mean, rooms? the dining room is definitely still there. I think that, you know, the average person still wants that dining room space. I think it's less of the formal dining room at the front of the house. You know, you come in, there's the dining room on the left, the living room on the right, and you go past the stair to get to the family room and the kitchen. So it's less of that that kind of broken up space or the super formal dining room. And it's more of, mm-hmm. you know, the great room configuration where it's all wrapped up in a line where you've got a, a kitchen, a dining room, and then a living room all in a big rectangle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a configuration that you see all day long. And then um, one of my favorites is, you know, the house that, uh, that I'm in now that I, I got to work with, with a builder on designing and then was fortunate enough to move into is I've got the L configuration where I've got the kitchen kind of, in the corner and then the dining room out in front and the living room to the side. And the thing I like about that is then the dining room isn't the central focal point. The kitchen is, and then you can spin off to either the dining or the living area. Yeah. Awesome. And, and I think, you know, another, another thing that I always like to focus on that, you know, what, I, what I'm, what I'm always trying to do when I'm working on a design of a home is, I'm trying to think of how to make it feel like something special and something with character and something with charm because, you know, commodities allowed. (laughs) Yeah. And we, you know, we all look to these old historic homes or at least I do. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but I, I look at all these historic homes and, you know, the, the downtown neighborhoods that are super desirable and these old character homes where a lot of times you've got vaulted space up in the second floor where the bedrooms feel like they're kind of tucked up into the attic and, um, you know, window arrangements is more about exterior than interior. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they just, these old, just real rich in character homes. And I, I try and put a lot of that into my designs where I'll try and clip ceilings in the second floors. Uh, actually, the bedroom in my house, the plate is at five feet. So the, the outside walls of the, of the bedroom have are five feet tall, and then it's a big vaulted ceiling. And I remember when the builder was first building this house and they got all the framing done, they walked in and everyone's like, Oh, I don't know if we can do this. This is going to be, I don't know if people are going to like it five feet. What if they have big bed frames? And my first thought was we can't change designs of homes based on people's bed frames. We got to do something (laughs) cool and people will like it. And so sure enough, we get everything drywalled and the model opens and that house is about, I don't know, out of the, the three plans that house probably is 70% of the community because everyone just loves that master bedroom space. And wow, there you go. You know, other features as well. And it didn't help or didn't hurt that it was the model. But I think that that, that creates a memory point. And that's something that we kind of talk a lot about in our office is how do we create memory points in homes that, you know, when you're going around walking models, it's pretty easy to go, God, was that the Richmond house? Was that the you know, was that the DR Horton? Was that whatever? And I don't mean to pick on those guys by any means. I just name, you know, yeah. big national builders that come into mind, but it, it can start to blend together a little bit after you walk all these homes. Whereas very quickly, you might not even remember the builder, but if you go in and go, God, remember that, that bedroom with a really cool vaulted ceiling and all of that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, even to the point where in Pittsburgh, we stopped decorating the secondary bedrooms. So if it was a four bedroom upstairs design, we certainly would decorate the owner's suite. We'd decorate another bedroom, but then 
you know, for so many years it was like, okay, well, here's the pink room. Here's the blue room. <laughs> you know, here's the two kids rooms. And it's like, gosh, you don't need to see that after a yeah. while. So let's, let's figure out what else let's make one a home office. Let's make one a demonstration room for something else. Or there is just, it, especially those secondary rooms. If it is just kind of the standard 10 by 12 or 12 by 12 space. I mean, we get it. It's another room that can be whatever you want. You get, that, you gotta have, bed, but right? you got to be able to put the ceramic tacos on the nightstand next to the kitchen. <laughs> right. Yeah. The ceramic tacos will not be the memory point for long, <laughs> right? It, it's a, it's, it's a layer. It's part of the design, but it's not, if that's what you're hoping is going to be your memory point, you're in, you're in trouble. Yeah. All right. To close out, my last question for you, Seth is, have you ever been brought in and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, I don't know. We don't, we don't do show prep here. Uh, have you ever been brought in to design something in a project that has previously failed or a product that has failed, like restart or redo something, or do you tend to just be brought in at the beginning? You know, I, I've what I've kind of found is that we're we're actually doing a little bit more of this where we're being brought in to help re-elevate something. So we're there. Oh, that's a nicer we, word. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, well, okay, tell and, me and more about that. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's but it's literally taking taking a floor plan that someone has and say, you know, this I really like this plan, but how do we give it a fresh update? And so one yeah. sometimes we'll look at the floor plans and offer some critiques and suggestions of the plans and. And then also, you know, I'm working with a couple different builders right now where all I'm doing is I'm taking their plan and I'm providing the new skin for them so that we're doing this contemporary farmhouse or, you know, whatever style they're mm-hmm. looking for. So that tends to be kind of the, the thing that, that we're doing, you know, a fair bit of as far as kind of helping taking something that's not as successful and, you know, might be the great, great plan, but it doesn't fit the, you know, the design guidelines for the new neighborhood sure. you're going to or sure. something to that effect. Yeah. Well, and so many of the timeless designs, even the ones that don't have a formal dining room or whatever, there's still only so many different things you can do to the inside, but certainly re-elevating, which is a whole new word. I didn't know that was a word, but now it makes complete sense. Yeah. We've done, we re-elevated stuff all the time, but we never used that word. We just said, let's come up with a new elevation. And that's why we were on elevation L on one of our floor plans, because it was oh. just... It was a best-selling plan since the company was founded, and just every two years or so, we needed to re-elevate. So there, yeah, go. freshen it up, keep it looking different. And sometimes a plan's so successful that you're like, all right, I want to build this more in this neighborhood, but the repetition uh, restrictions—you know—you can't have that. You can't have so many elevations in a row or whatever. So we've we've gone back where we've had projects that were really successful and. Our plans were selling well. Our elevations were doing great. And the, the builder came back and said, God, we need another elevation because this plan is in sure. such demand yeah, that I, right. because of the repetition you know, constraints, we have to yep. provide a new elevation. Yeah, that's a great point too. Exactly. Exactly right on. Yeah. Well, Seth, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Yeah. Uh, we'll link to your LinkedIn profile. Everyone can go out and connect with you. Seth is also a 40 under 40 winner years past. And I've also seen him speak at uh, different events. So I know, I know you're out and about not, not right now because of the current conditions of the world, but soon enough, again, I'm sure you'll see Seth Hart on a stage near you. Yeah. Kevin, thank you very much for having me. This was a, a nice little break. One, it's snowing here. So we're on, we're on full oh, uh, wow. lockdown and it's snowing. So this was a, a good little chance for me to take a break and have fun talking some talking some shop with you. So I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. We'll see you again soon. All right. Take care. 
May you have auspiciousness and causes of success. May you have the confidence to always do your best. May you take no effort in your being generous. Sharing what you can, nothing more, nothing less. May you know the meaning of the word happiness. May you always lead from the beating. Uh, thanks again to Seth for joining us. Fantastic to have him on. Again, a great guy, lover of breakfast. And thanks again, Seth, for all that you do for industry and giving back and talking to PCBC and the Builders Show and everywhere else. Really, really appreciate having Seth on with us. Okay, answers to last week's question of the week on a scale of one to 10, how much change and or stress did your builder or you go through adapting to the first few weeks of COVID-19? And on a scale of one to 10, the winner by quite a bit is 10. PCSD is real, peak COVID stress disorder. 17 votes for that. So that, that one led the pack. The other one that was a close runner up though was number five. So similar to any other large company project. I mean, it was a lot, but it wasn't just incredible. And of course there's always one in every group. What is a pandemic? Doug, Doug Sneed uh, saying he's not even really sure what we're talking about here. It was also interesting to see that many people who had been through the previous great recession gave it a seven. So somewhere, somewhere in the middle as they had that previous experience as well. Ton of great comments here. Just want to read a few, uh, and we are going to send out uh, cash prizes to a, a few of these people. Haley says, I, hey, I love everyone I work with, but they had a fever, and the only prescription was more marketing materials, meaning we continue to come up with more marketing, marketing ideas, more videos, more emails to send, hoping that would stop us from seeing a drop in leads or at the very least minimize the drop. So a little bit of that initial insanity, right? Just, we got to do more. We got to do more. We got to make this happen. Uh, Lori Tarver was difficult on the sales team due to fear and the sales leaders due to stress to develop the plan for the team and the customer's safety while not hampering the customer's journey to new home ownership. Beth Bird said, while it was stressful and we had to make quite a few changes to adapt to the situation, we were fortunate to be allowed to stay open and continue building. That's definitely true. Those of you in uh, states that that did not reopen for much longer certainly had a harder time of it. I did hear from several employees at other local builders who were under significant stress because their companies refused to make any changes and were insisting employees go on as though nothing was happening. Very sad. Uh, Steve Shoemaker, things seem to change daily for the first three weeks. Shelter in place restrictions. What is essential? Changed by market. Mostly the panic was over the backlog. Then oil hit zero, and after that, it went from a seven to a two pretty quick as sales kept rolling through the door. Weeks one to three felt like an anvil hanging over our head, and we were waiting for it to drop. And thankfully, Steve, it, it never did. Uh, one more here from Sarah Beshi. Panic never occurred. Concern? Yes, which quickly shifted to creativity. This is due to our leadership giving a voice to the front lines and acting accordingly. We adapted quickly and are an innovative, forward-thinking company. Also, my manager has a coach mentality. I cannot imagine working for an operationally or motivationally archaic builder at this time. That would be horrific. I don't know how some of y'all do it. If you are in a situation where leadership is operating in a bubble of decision-making. Also, there is no excuse I can fathom for leaders and managers adding more drama and uncertainty to their sales teams during a pandemic. I have heard of that happening as well. This entire situation has been an excellent test of leadership, in my opinion. I think it's very, very well said, Sarah. Thanks so much. All right. And next week's question of the week is connected to an upcoming special event coming up June 2nd. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes, of course, but you can also go to now.doconvert.com forward slash survey 2020. 
we are releasing the 2020 Home Builder follow-up study results. And this year we have two studies in one. So we did the normal study of 100 builders as, as similar to the way that we have done it for many years since 2012. But then and when COVID hit, we did an additional study to figure out that when all that most builders had was online leads, were we then changing up our strategy and processes in order to take even better care of those people? So this week's question of the week is also a poll. Place your bets now. Did builders get better or worse at follow-up when online leads were all that they had during late March and early April? And again, tune in on June 2nd, sign up for that webinar. You'll also get access to the full report and a PDF copy for those who attend. All right, that'll do it for this week. We'll see you next time. Be sure to check out dconvert.com for articles, guides, white papers, thousands of articles at this point on online sales and marketing for the industry. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.